Bar weep, grana weep, ninny bon. That's right. Bar weep, grana weep, ninny bon. Bar weep, grana weep, ninny bon. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. We're here at the Retro Trigger talking about Transformers, more specifically Transformers Generation 1. I am Ben Rosenthal. I'm here to speak the words for your ears, for them to devour and, and consume and then gain sustenance and energy so you don't have to die. You're welcome. Uh, I am joined this month by a guest, as I am each and every month. Um, today's guest is many, many things. He's a best-selling author. He's the chief court reporter for The Advertiser. He's a breakfast radio analysis. He's a professional wrestling commentator and a full-time nice guy. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Sean Fuster is here. When does he get here? Oh, hello. Yes, hello. Welcome. Hello. No, they're cheering. You can't hear it, but everyone back here is just going nuts. They're, they're, they, they love you. Is it a full Road Warriors pop? I need it to be a full Road Warriors pop. No, it's more of a Macho Man, WrestleMania 3 type deal. Sorry. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. So, Sean, I, I gave a brief overview, but for people who haven't heard of you, wh- who are you? What do you do? I'm the bald guy that writes about crime in Adelaide. Uh, I've been covering crime and justice issues in South Australia for coming up on 20 years for The Advertiser. I've written a book out of that. I've had my book turned into a TV show out of that. And as far as I'm concerned, my primary goal is to give victims a voice because as the justice system works, most often victims of crime don't get a proper say in the process. They don't get much publicity of what they're going through, how they're suffering, what they need to do to heal. And so I try to shine a light on that and direct a lot of my journalism toward being victim focused and healing focused while also educating people about the justice system and the many, many bastards who make their way through it. You also collect toys, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Lots good, good. Phew. Because was... let's face it, with all the stuff that I'm hearing all the time, I need some kind of outlet. <laughs> um, so we're going to be talking about Transformers, specifically Generation 1 Transformers, of which I know you have a little bit of a penchant for. Yeah, Transformers Generation 1 is my primary collecting focus. It has been my primary collecting focus since about 1986. I've been following the line since it started in 84, but it was 86 that really tipped it over the line and made it into my primary focus. It's never left me since. Toys, comic books, coloring books, pieces of kitsch, little merchandising stuff, pencil cases, whatever it is, if it's Transformers G1, I either have it or I'm looking for it somewhere. So what got you hooked on Gen 1 specifically? Like everybody my age, when Gen 1 first came out, it was interesting. It was fascinating. It was different. You know, it was two toys in one. It wasn't just a toy car. It wasn't just a toy robot. It was both. And the idea of the transformation was intoxicating. But those first two years, 84 and 85, I liked it as much as I liked Masters of the Universe or Kenner Superpowers or any of the other toy lines that were floating around at that time. It was the 86 movie that put it over the line for me and made it my life's work in terms of collecting. I loved what that movie did in terms of upping the stakes, making the characters bigger, adding consequence and gravitas to things and making it more of a a sci-fi thing. You throw in the British comics that were coming out at the time, which were very much trying to compete with 2000 AD and so had a bit more of them, just a slightly more mature slant to them. And you had the perfect recipe to grab young Sean by the coattails and say, come along on this ride. You're not leaving. What are you doing wearing coattails in like 1985? It was the cool thing at the time. Man. Yeah, right. It checks out. I was, I was only younger than I am now. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, you collect Gen 1. What out of all of them is your favorite Transformer? 
Oh. Just speaking of Gen 1 here, because there yeah. is a very limited uh, range in that first production line. Yeah, so my favourite in terms of pure construction, if I'm taking you know sentimental favourites out or characters that I love, in terms of construction, it's Overlord, which is one of the last toys in the line. Uh, right. It, yeah, it was only released in Japan and Europe. Australia somehow got a couple of them as well. I picked mine up much later. It's a very large Decepticon who splits into a Brahms tank and an SR-71 Blackbird. He's one of the tallest Decepticons in the line, and it's just this, this beautiful midnight black jet with orange accents and this beautiful blue and white tank that looks like it can roll over anything, and they fall apart and recombine into this towering Decepticon that's bigger than everybody else and just looks absolutely insanely good. And it's one of the pieces that has so many little different accessories, you know, two little engines that plug in and lots of different guns and radar towers and things that stick all over it. It's sort of the perfect fusion of that GI Joe aesthetic of let's have as many accessories as possible with that Transformers aesthetic. So that's your favorite transforming transformer. What, what's yeah. the sentimental? Ultra Magnus, no doubt. Really? You're an Ultra Magnus man. We'll always take Ultra Magnus over Optimus Prime. Wow. Wait. Hot Rod is who we were. Optimus Prime is who we wanted to be. Ultra Magnus was who we could pretty much achieve being if we worked really hard at it. Like, you know, Magnus was the attainable goal. And the so Optimus is robot Jesus. Oh, yeah. So Ultra Magnus is more your... John the Baptist. Yeah, there you go. That's a good... good. Why, why are we talking about religion? That's not good. Well, we are talking about Transformers. And if you think about the UK comics, what Simon Furman did, religion plays a massive <laughs> part in the G1 stuff. But look, and I know that we're sticking to toys here more than comics, but I do have to diverge and say part of the reason I love Ultra Magnus is because of what Simon Furman did with him in the UK comics. Magnus was the warrior that was created to be in universe, the next Optimus Prime. Mm. and lacked the self-confidence to live up to that lofty ideal. And they carried that through in the animated movie as well. They did. They did. Very That's much right. so. To the and point where at his detriment, because uh, spoiler yeah. alert for a 30-year-old movie, but uh, Ultra Magnus gets severely messed up because he refuses to take the leadership. That's right. Exactly. And I think we can all identify with that, that idea of you're being told that you're something more than you are and you're expected to reach that level, how do you find the self-confidence to be yourself within that and reach the peak that you can reach? Mm. And Furman did a brilliant job with Magnus portraying that. And he also did a great job using Galvatron as the antithesis of that, as basically the personification of all of Magnus's self-doubt, fear, self-loathing with this unconquerable Decepticon that there was just no way he could possibly beat. So, I mean, I've never been shy about the fact that I've developed mental health issues over my years as of the journalism. Magnus is one of those icons I look to when I remember, okay, yep, I'm being beaten down. I'm being, you know, knocked around. I feel depressed. I'm having trouble, but I can cope. There is a way out. I will be able to get over this because that's the lessons that I learned reading those stories. So I look at that toy and it's like, yeah, there's the personification of that never say die perseverance, but not in that ultra heroic, I will never say die, I cannot be conquered, but in that, I'm probably going to die if I do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yep. The old, uh, we have a uh, founder of Shotokan Karate, um, Guchin Funakoshi, had a very famous saying, um, fall down seven times, get up eight. Yep. That whole antithesis. Exactly. But also with the, with the acceptance of fear. 
You know, Optimus mm. was fearless. Rodimus was fearless in a completely different way. Magnus was full of fear, but he still did it anyway. And that's what really speaks to me about that character. You know what? In the last three minutes, you've turned me over to Ultra Magnus. <laughs> I never dug him. I thought he was boring and bland. But just hearing that, I've gone, oh, I kind of want to read those comics now. I have some comics to loan you then. Because seriously, anybody out there that's listening to this that only knows Ultra Magnus as either the Robert Stack character from the movie or the Jack Angel character from the cartoon, go out and find Target 2006, Fallen Angel, Fire on High, all of the UK stories about Ultra Magnus, and you will see a completely different version of the character that still dovetails perfectly into that personification that you know, but will make you absolutely love him. And just, we'll talk about the movie a little bit later on, because I've got a little bit to say about that. But um, just to put it in terms that uh, you and I can appreciate, uh, Ultra Magnus, uh, not sorry, uh, Hot Rod, Rodimus Prime, Rodimus Prime. Yep. He's John Cena, right? Look, in the modern context, yeah. But again, I've got such a skewed view on that because here I invoke Simon Furman one more time. Furman used him in the comics in a completely different way to the cartoons. Oh, really? Yeah. So he wasn't just this, uh, this is your new Optimus, worship him. He was, how am I ever going to live up to that? I'm never going to be able to live up to that. I'm fighting a war that I thought was over. I thought I'd won the day by chucking Galvatron out the side of Unicron. I blew up Unicron. It's all happy now, right? No, crap. And also... Mentally, I'm 16 years old, but I've been aged physically to my prime and I'm supposed to suddenly be this great leader. Is that what The Matrix does? Yeah. The Matrix physically changes Hot Rod to the peak that he is supposed to be capable of becoming. Right. So living up to his potential. Living up to his potential, but the brain stays the same. It's why that line from Cup, I knew you had potential, lad, is so important. So Furman seized on that and made Rodimus this teenager in, almost like Shazam, this teenager in a perfect body, who's now like, congratulations, you're in charge. Imagine if Billy Batson suddenly gets handed leadership of the Justice League. <laughs> yeah, right. That's who the comic oh. version of Hot Rod Rodimus was, and it was so much better as a result, because they also put in the wrinkle that if the Matrix is ever separated from him, he reverts back to Hot Rod. Yes. And they did this great story in the comics where the Quintessons invaded Autobot City and got the Matrix. So Hot Rod had to basically play a game of um, uh, Die Hard through Metroplex to try to get the Matrix back to rescue everybody. Damn, I want to read these comics. That's cool. (laughs) Wow, that's great. Okay, um, we'll get back to it in just one moment. Uh, We'll get into the actual talking about the history and whatnot, but just one little uh, way that Adelaide works being a small country town. Uh, everyone sort of knows everyone or has been uh, involved with people. I was sent an article uh, the other day by my co-host Floppy Starrick and he goes, <laughs> Oh, I know Sean Fuster. He wrote an article on me and sent it to me. And sure enough, there's a very young floppy with his son written by you. What's going on there? I remember that very well. So we got word at the Tizer that um, Spielberg had picked up the rights to make a Transformers movie. This is long before Michael Bay's ever involved in it, anything like that. Ah, uh, the before times. The we're, times. We're, all, we're all excited. This is going to be great. It's going to be amazing. And work says to me, oh, you know, we need an article. I'm like, all right, cool. Well, that's great. I can find someone to interview. I can pretty much write it off my own bat. And they're like, great. Well, we need to find someone who can be in a photograph 
but it can't be you and it can't be your collection. And at the time, Floppy's then partner was working at a toy shop out at Ingle Farm. And it was one of the toy shops that I used to haunt and pick up bits and pieces. And so I got introduced to him via that. And it's like, do you want to be in the article? He's like, yeah, all right, come on over, bring a photographer. So we went from there. <laughs> yep, sounds so like Floppy. All the pictures that are in, all the Transformers, sorry, that are in that picture were actually picked by me, which is why Ultra Magnus is prominent in it. <laughs> I've got to make sure Magnus is in this because this might be the only time I get to write about Transformers for the newspaper. He's the one of the ones who hasn't shown up in um, uh, but, but, but the movies or anything like that. We've you know what? Ultra Magnus. I'm not too sad about that. It's like my, you know, same way that Kyle Rayner has been spared the Zack Snyder treatment in the DCU. Uh, my boy Magnus has been spared the Michael Bay treatment. And I'm, I'm kind of all right with that. Sometimes it's a blessing to have your favorite not turn up. Yeah. See, I had uh, Norman Osborn played by William Defoe, and yeah. Defoe was a great Osborn, but uh, Power Ranger Goblin. Go, go Goblin Ranger. Yeah, it was, it was not the best. All right, so let's little, do a little bit of a deep dive into the history. <clears throat> Transformers Generation 1, also known as G1, is a toy line running from 1984 to 1990, produced by Hasbro and Takara. It was a line of toy robots that could change into alternate forms, such as vehicles, miniature guns, cassettes, animals, and even dinosaurs. We'll be talking about that in a sec. Uh, by moving parts into other places. And it was the first line of toys produced for successful successful Transformers toy and entertainment franchise. That was a really hard sentence to say. I'm not sure why. (laughs) But uh, yeah, we we touched on uh, the Dinobots, Dinobots, which were the last of the line, uh, I think came at the very end of Gen 1. Um, For me, they they were always the grail. Grimlock and, and Slag and oh I had um oh, I always forget it the Brontosaurus what was his name that Slug. was sorry he was Sludge Sludge yes not Slag Sludge yes thank you Slag was the Slug. Triceratops yes uh, Slag and uh, Grimlock were the ones I wanted I got Sludge but I played with that thing so much that uh, you know bits broke off him. Um, and, uh, I, I didn't care. I still kept him. You, you put it back together. You find a way for your dad to put him back together. Uh, and that's something I want to talk about as well. These gen one toys, they were really well put together. Well, it's interesting. And I think we've got a quibble on a um, definition here. What you're referring to as G1, I think feels more like you're talking about 84, 85, 86, but G1 continues on after that. It includes the headmasters. Into a second run. Masters. No, no. G1 is everything right up to, as that thing says, 1990. Because yep. then you get the re-releases of everything with new paint jobs and missile launches and fluoro colors and color changes. And, and that's where Megatron was a tank. Tank. That's right. And that's yep. G2. Yep. So when we talk about G1, the, grit, the Dinobots become second year as a result. Oh, so it's like a, a, a Dino Riders type thing to talk about another obscure franchise. They sort of release an initial line. Yeah. And then a follow-up line, but it's still within that same still generation release. G1, that's right. Because G1's a retroactive name. Yep. Nobody called it G1 at the time. When no, G1 that was called the Transformers. Comes, that's right. It was called the Transformers. When Generation 2 comes out, everyone starts retroactively referring to this as G1. And that name really takes prominence in the fandom after Beast Wars much, much later. It's sort of a... Uh, it's a fan coined name that eventually Hasbro realizes they can make money marketing because they're Hasbro. 
So those first couple of years worth of toys, 84, 85, 86, the pre-movie era, like you say, die-cast metal, solid as rocks. I've got a ton of them downstairs that are my childhood ones and they just keep going because like you said, if a piece falls off, it's a matter of going around to the hardware store and finding a small pin to stick in the same spot or getting a screwdriver and putting it back together again or getting some glue or even some blue tack and just slapping bits together again so that a joint will hold because they were built to take a licking and keep on kicking because they were Japanese toys, not American toys. Yeah, and uh, Japan toys, even to this day, you can get some really old stuff and it being in such fantastic prime condition because the whole culture over there is you show respect and you show respect for the things that you purchase and you take care of it and you don't trash it up. Like the most you'll find on some of these old toys, the most you will find is someone has written their name in texture on the foot in yep. Japanese katakana. And that is the most uh, you, you'll uh, disfiguring you'll see of these things. Yeah. Well, when I was in Tokyo the first time, and obviously this is way after generation one, it was when uh, galaxy force toys were coming out, which we know over here as Transformers Cybertron. There was actually a, um, a display table set up in the department store that I went to and they had the entire range unboxed, not tagged, not tied down, no sonic screamers, nothing like that. So that kids could actually play with them in the store and decide which toys they wanted. Oh, that's awesome. I sat and watched these Japanese kids ranging in age from about four through to about 14, gently playing with the toys, transforming them, transforming them back, putting them down, walking over the shelf, picking up the one they wanted, going and purchasing them. My mind was blown. That's awesome. So you've got that culture mixed with that solid construction and you have toys that last the test of time. That's great. Speaking of test of time and time itself, let's go back to 1983. That was a great segue. Uh, Hasbro representatives were sent to Tokyo, uh, more specifically the Tokyo Toy Show, in search of prospective new toys that they could import to North America. At the time, Japanese toy manufacturer manufacturer Takara was showcasing several transforming robot toys from lines such as uh, Diaclone, Microchange, and Mecha. Hasbro bought the rights to produce the toys pretty much on the spot and decided to release them under a single brand to avoid confusing the market with several series and with similar premises. Uh, Prior to the Hasbro deal, Takara briefly sold Diaclone toys in specialty toy shops in the US under the Diacron moniker. While some parts of Europe, Diaclone enjoyed a small following uh, with a comic. There was a comic book series. There was. As I I mentioned to you beforehand, I didn't have time to give this a read through, which is why my my reading's a bit disjointed. You'll forgive me. Good thing it isn't audio only. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, um, Diaclones. Uh, how much of a Diaclone fan are you? Because uh, I was perusing eBay last night and came across the Optimus Prime Diaclone inbox for Battle Convoy. Yeah. Um, Explain to us what Diaclones are. So Diaclone was the concept that, uh, well, actually, the Transformers that we know are a subset of Diaclone. Diaclone was an ongoing story about small pilots called Dianauts who had little magnets in their feet fighting a never-ending battle against the evil invading aliens, the Warudas, which is a really cool name, let's be honest. And so the Diaclone soldiers, the Dianauts, had various different transforming robot mechas. Most of them in the first days were your traditional uh, 
great Mazinga, Voltus V type looking super robots. You know, that very Japanese style of it's humanoid, barrel chested, round arms, things like that. Love Lepidon. Lepidon, exactly. That sort of idea. But then they did a subline of car robots and you could get, for example, Sideswipe. We all know him as a red Lamborghini Countach. You could get him in several different colors because these were just vehicles that turned into robotic suits piloted by human human pilots. Mecca, basically. Yeah. Mecca. They, like Robotech would later do uh, in the West, as far as we were concerned, with the Valkyries and things like that. Did Robotech come after Transformers? Robotech as a series in the West came after Transformers. Right. Okay. Yeah. But of course, Macross was prior. Yep. So it was all that sort of concept. You know, here's a pilot in an armored suit riding around in a car, hits a button, transforms, fights the aliens. Hasbro sees all of that, buys the whole lot, takes it back to the West, goes to their uh, advertising partners, Griffin Bacall in New York, and says, we need you to turn this into a toy line. Griffin Bacall does the smart thing and goes, hey, Marvel Comics, we need you to turn this into a toy line, please. Do you know what's amazing? Uh, it happened before when you were talking about uh, the official car- uh, classification of Gen 1 and how it's a fan-based one. And it's happened just now. You are following my dot points. <laughs> <laughs> Almost exactly. Like, I already crossed out. All right, so he's talked about that. I won't have to worry about that. And now you've just gone into the comics and I've gone, you're just deleting all my stuff. Sorry. Oh, no, 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 no. We'll actually talk about that. Um, I'll just read this little bit and then we can get back on that. But I Do just it. find it uncanny that... <laughs> that's how I know going. too much of this crap. <laughs> Anyway, as you were saying, Sean, Hasbro had a business relationship with Marvel Comics, which had successfully produced Hasbro tie-in comics with G.I. Joan. Uh, Marvel was approached to once again provide a backstory for the new toy line. Uh, Marvel editor-in-chief Jim Shooter and writer Dennis O'Neill created an overall story with editor Bob... Budiansky. Budiansky. Thank jeez, I've got it in front of me and you're just like Nazis. Uh, was brought in to create names and profiles for each of the characters. Now, as you were saying before I rudely interrupted you, uh, tell us a little bit about the, these comics and this backstory. Well, to me, this is where the genius of Transformers comes in and it's why Transformers works. So if you think about toy play patterns prior to the advent of the 1980s where, you know, it was the Star Wars mentality, by the hero, by his friend, by his enemy, by his spacecraft and recreate the scenes from the movie. That's how we were taught to play from Kenner's Star Wars on up. The play pattern for toys before that was very much what people call the toy story model. You have a bunch of toys, some are hand-me-downs, they come from various places. You put them together in an epic battle of good and evil where you make up all the personalities, right? Mm. So, you know, Mr. Potato Head, you know, evil Dr. Pork Chop. You, you've seen Toy Story. You've seen how Andy does it. Everyone Toy knows that. Story? What, what's Toy Story? <laughs> I'll, I'll show you later. It, it's oh, the, thank you. It's the thing you watch when Frozen's not on. Yeah, see, Frozen's never not on. Yeah, I know. I know. So anyway, um, Got to let Hasbro it go. walk into Marvel Comics via Griffin Bacall and hand them all of these toys and say, make a story out of this. And Jim Shooter and Denny O'Neill and Bob Budiansky basically sit there like a bunch of kids and say, well, this is going to be the good guy. This is going to be the bad guy. This one's this, this one's that. And so it's very organic. It was a bunch of people playing with toys and writing down their ideas. For me, that's why the Transformers mythos has endured so well. Mm. Because it's not a corporate created, we need to sell this many good guys, this many bad guys. It's a bunch of creative types who are responsible. I mean, if you look at the lineage, Jim Shooter was writing for the Legion of Superheroes for DC at the age of 14. 
That's ridiculous. As someone who was an aspiring comic book writer, that hurts. But anyway, he's very talented, so it doesn't hurt that much. Denny O'Neill is responsible for the legendary Green Lantern, Green Arrow, hard-traveling heroes run. He's also the man that redefined Batman back into a dark night after the 66 TV show. Let's also talk about, uh, just going back to Jim Shooter, he's also the man who created Thanos, who some of our uh, people may know. No, Shooter did not create Thanos. That's Jim oh, Starlin. He was the editor then, yeah? He was the editor. That's right. Spot on. He was the one that Good. signed off on the creation of Yeah, Thanos. you're right. Spot on. Yes. That, that's right. You heard it here first, folks. Uh, it's about the fourth time I've got something wrong in this uh, podcast, but it, I'm spot on, so it doesn't matter. Exactly. Anyway, I, I, Sean. I didn't doubt you for a minute. Yeah, no, who does? <laughs> oh, look at distraction. So, what were you saying? You were saying we've got all these incredibly creative types who are responsible for some of the most epic runs on comics being given free license with these toys and creating personalities. And I mean, let's go to Optimus Prime's personality for a minute. What an incredible character you've got right there. Like, you know, he is fatherly. He is kind. He is compassionate. He's still able to kick ass if he needs to, but he goes out of his way to try not to. Denny O'Neill, who came up with that personality profile, was a 60s hippie. And it was a 60s hippie trying to create a hero for the Reagan era. He can pick up a weapon if he needs to, but he's going to go out of his way to not pick up that weapon and exhaust every peaceful option first. He's a pacifist until. That's an incredibly unique character. Very similar to the Doctor. Yeah, very similar to the Doctor. Hmm. You've got O'Neill riffing on all these things that don't normally turn up in toy lines. I mean, look at the other major toy lines. Star Wars, it's a war. G.I. Joe, it's a soldier toy. Masters of the Universe, how hard can I hit you? you know, <laughs> yeah, big, beefy, uh, yeah. big beefy. So here comes Optimus Prime, who's literally a walking truck. And Denny O'Neill says, yeah, but what if he's more concerned with helping and healing than he is with hurting? Hmm. And that's baked into the DNA of this concept from the get-go. That's crazy. I never even thought about uh, his character that much until you were talking just then and you said, uh, yeah, he doesn't, want to fight until he has to and i said holy crap you're right like it's the last scenario he'll go all right let's go here's one of my favorite things if you go back and watch the new transformers bumblebee film which Mm -hmm. my money is the only time optimus has been very correctly portrayed in live action the michael bay films that optimus is a very different version of what you mean optimus doesn't have rocket boots like astro boy and flies around the planet murderous prime yeah So if you look at the Bumblebee version and I was watching it once with my wife, Jesse cosplay. And I said to her, I reckon prime is shooting to disable. I don't reckon there's a single kill shot in his entire two sequences in the film. And Jesse's like, no way. There's no way they would bother going to that extent. And I'm like, yeah, but I reckon they have. When we got it on Blu-ray, I watched it back on freeze frame. He's kneecapping and shoulder shooting and judo tossing. There is not a single kill shot fired by Optimus Prime in that film. That's great. Who, who was responsible for that film? Uh, Travis Knight, the director. Right. Has he gone on record saying that uh, that's something he... I've seen nothing about it anywhere beyond him saying we wanted to get back to the core of who Optimus Prime was. Wow. It's amazing. Wow. Like, you, you can actually see as he walks away, they are animating Seeker robots, the Decepticon jets, holding their knees like Peter Griffin in the background, doing that. <laughs> <sighs> because he's kneecapped them. He doesn't kill wow. anybody in those two sequences. And that's who Optimus is. That's great. 
Uh, I'm, I haven't seen the Bumblebee movie, I have to be honest, because just all the other films put such a horrible taste in my mouth. I remember uh, when I first started dating uh, my current girlfriend, she really loved Transformers, the movies, because of the design. She's an yep. animation student and design person. Uh, so she wanted to go see it. And it's the, I think it was the third one, maybe? Which one had Grimlock in it? Third one? Uh, third or fourth. It one of them. Mark Wal- a car crash. Yeah, yeah, Mark Wahlberg, uh, his first one. Yeah, that's four, uh, I think. It's, no, this had Grimlock on it. So it had dinosaurs, robot dinosaurs in it. You'd think it'd be a no, uh, a, a, all systems go for me. Uh, I remember sitting there halfway through and just looking at the ceiling and just going, just end. <laughs> just go home. Yeah, it was awful. It just felt like it went on forever and ever. And after that moment, like I saw on DVD, the first two movies, um, sort of the only one that really sparked my interest or the only time it really sparked my interest was Starscream was um, pretty, pretty good in it. Pretty good. Uh, and Megatron at one point just goes, you failed me again, Starscream. Uh, and I went, yes, good. Yes. Uh, but apart from that, no, nah, trash. Oh, and they had Peter Cullen voice him. So. Yeah, look, definitely check out Bumblebee. Um, I'm on record multiple times as saying that if they'd been able to make a Transformers movie in 87, Bumblebee is what it would have been. Right. The script and everything is just lifted straight out of 1987. Yeah, I might give that a go. I think it's on one of my streaming things I've got here. I'm not um, saying it's perfect, but it's good. Well, it's better than the trap trash we've had it's the one that i will acknowledge as an actual transformers live action movie it fits my very discerning snobbish taste let's put it that way good speaking of snobbish tastes let's talk about the stuff that was released when the toy line was released such as the animated series other merchandising tie-ins um some of the things i've got i've got a i still have it to this day a uh, ultra magnus placemat that i had as a kid very cool that is still on top of my microwave uh in the kitchen. I've, I've had got the that. Optimus Prime one. Yeah, I've got the Ultra Magnus. Uh, I have oh, a uh, Optimus Prime, very tattered looking bath towel that I had as a kid. That was my gym towel when I used to go to the gym a little bit more. Cool. Uh, that was what I used to carry around with. It is tattered. It's got no holes in it. Uh, Optimus is faded, but he's still there. Yeah. Um, and of course, I've still got my Transformers around. I used to try and hunt down other ones just mm-hmm. because of you know Soundwave was cool i uh, always loved ravage um but uh yeah built to last uh animated series probably shouldn't go into that that might be another episode all in itself but i do want to talk about quickly uh how the death of optimus prime tra- traumatized me in the animated film yeah uh now i don't know how you coped but i cried in the cinema because the visual of him going gray and then not being in the film. And as a kid, you're sitting there for the whole time going, when's Optimus coming back? Because you were taught at that age that the heroes come back and save the day. And this is the first time I'd seen in a movie that, uh, nah, man, that the heroes can die. (laughs) I was the same. Um, I, it blew me away. Like at the time, I don't have a strong recollection of how I reacted at the time, which is probably a good idea and a good sense that I must've just like absolutely lost my nut and, you know, dissolved into a crying mess. But I remember it really struck home for me that there are stakes, Mm. you know, this means something, even the heroes can die and the heroes can die, but somehow you have to go on. Yep. Um, And 
that stuck with me. And like I said earlier, that's what made Transformers into my number one franchise. This idea that people can die. There will be new characters. The stories will go on. There will be a legacy. Optimus will never be forgotten, but he, you know, goes on to inspire other generations. And then comes uh, back as a murderous ghost in the TV Yeah, series. see, he never came back <laughs> in the comics and I preferred the comics. So <laughs> I, I can ignore the murderous ghost. But um, Except for the Bay films, he's a murderous ghost in that too. But, uh, you know, it, it gave it such a groundswell of gravitas. And one of the things I've actually said to a couple of people over the years is I think that as much as the death of Optimus Prime was a mistake from a marketing perspective, it's the reason Transformers has endured because mm. that's a lightning rod moment for our generation. Absolutely. Optimus Prime died. And no matter who you were, no matter how much you remember about Transformers, if you're an average member of the public who was alive in the 1980s, you know three things about Transformers. There was a red truck, there was a cassette player, and the red truck died in the movie. Yep. That is something that allows everyone to hang on to it. It's like a, if you don't know much about Star Wars, you know, no, I am your father. You yep. know, it's, it's that lightning rod moment. Transformers has one of those, whereas no other 80s franchise does. And to me, that's why Transformers has endured and perpetuated because we all remember, even on some visceral level, what it was like to watch Optimus Prime die or be around people who were affected by it. And let's not forget Optimus Prime died because of that stupid jerk hot rod trying <laughs> to take all the glory. <laughs> well, I'm not Joseph Campbell of him. <laughs> um, let's just talk a very brief moment because he is one of my favorites. I tend to like the bastards. I, I don't know why, but Starscream. Shock. Can you see my shocked face? <laughs> I'm sure it's coming through in this non-video recording. Just how shocked I am that Ben um, Rosenthal likes the baddies. <laughs> For those wow. of you playing at home, Sean and I do work together in a professional wrestling uh, environment where oh, I'd say there's a little bit of Starscream in the character I portray in that uh, area. A little bit. I have to tell you to take your wings off so that you don't <laughs> knock the entrance ramp down as you go through. He's just such a cowardly prick. It's he's so a, good. He's an incredible character. Um, one of the best characters ever devised for any medium because he's, if you like Loki from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you like Starscream already because Tom Hiddleston will make the perfect Loki. Uh, sorry, yeah. Tom Hiddleston will make the perfect Starscream. Yeah, uh, in the movie where Megatron comes crawling back after his battle with Prime and he's all injured and everything and Starscream just like laughs in his face, picks him up and throws him out the airlock and goes, <laughs> oh, I'm your king now. It's, ah, oh, just a complete and utter bastard. Every opportunity, you see it in the animated series as well. Every time there's an opportunity where Starscream can sort of weasel his way into becoming the uh, leader of the Decepticons, he takes it. And he stuffs up and he just grovels at Megatron's feet. And Megatron just goes, yeah, all right, Jesus. We had a running joke in this house when we were introducing my kid to the Transformers animated series that, you know, every time Megatron stubs his toe, Starscream screams, I'm the leader now. If Megatron <laughs> sneezes, I'm the leader now. If Megatron is invisible for 10 seconds, I'm the leader now. And it got to the point where the kid, if she heard someone in the house sneeze, would scream out, I'm the leader now. That's awesome. Oh, Starscream. And he was such a cool character as well, just a jet. Who doesn't want to be a jet? But the fact Beautiful that they didn't, they didn't make him 
this cool hip character. He was Weasley, as we said, sniving, conniving, uh, desperately trying to find a place to bury the knife. And his opportunity came and he paid the price in that very same film. He did. He was a bitch heel. Yeah. And he got his comeuppance. And you look across the entire range of the first year, especially of the Transformers and how well those personalities mesh together. Optimus being, as you said, robot Jesus. Uh, Grimlock being dumb, vicious, violent, but also noble savage underneath it all. Starscream being a complete weasel. Megatron being power mad. These are all pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that fit together and give you this incredible cast of characters. What's your take on Soundwave? Soundwave never got his due in the cartoon, sadly. He was just there to say cool things in Frank Welker's digitally modulated voice. Which was cool. Which was cool. And eject the tapes. He was meant to be, in, according to the bio on the back of the toy box, a mind reader and a blackmailer. And he kept his position in the Decepticon hierarchy by knowing everybody else's secrets and threatening to use them. Wow. So he's more of a manipulator. Oh man, the dichotomy there. Someone who knows all the secrets and is a tape player whose only purpose is to blast information out. That's awesome. Exactly. And he was the silent manipulator as well. Starscream would try to get things done that way, but Soundwave would just sit in the background. And because of course, Transformers are robotic he had the ability to scan basically their hard drives, which we would equivalent as mind reading. He'd pick up all their impulses and he'd go up to and say, so I hear you're uh, planning a revolt against Megatron. Uh, if you don't want me to tell Megatron, it might be time for you to support my, you know, ascension to the second in charge position. Oh, oh, sorry, Soundwave. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. And that's the thing as well. He never wanted Megatron's job. That's right. He just wanted to uh, be at the top and be the underling and control it that way. Maybe manipulate Megatron a little bit into, you know, uh, I don't know. Was Megatron ever like from memory? I haven't watched the cartoons in a long time. And as you said, he, he wasn't uh, done honors in the cartoon, but did he ever manipulate Megatron or was he just the, the general who agreed with everything Megatron said? Was he Megatron's confidant in the, in the TV show? He was the general who agreed with everything Megatron said, right? In the comics, he was, sort of diet Iago. He, would, he was the one that was the true believer in what the Decepticon cause was. And if Megatron got a little too big for his britches at times or a little too obsessed with taking down Optimus or whatever, he just sort of gently nudge his leader back toward what was supposed to be happening. Soundwave was the true North Star. Wow. <sighs> I want to read these comics. Man, that is so cool. Like, I didn't realize the depth of character that went into these guys. Like, I love them. I love their designs. And again, didn't read the comics as a kid, just watched the cartoon um, and bought the toys. But after hearing you describe all these characters, I'm a big character person. And the fact that they have all these intertwining characters with such succinct characteristics, yep. all mingling together and all coexisting in a plot that isn't simply good guys versus bad guys. Like no. Megatron's almost your Magneto type character. Yep. Uh, I mean, this came up in another podcast as well, but yeah, that um, you, you could, you can agree with the, agree with them. You can see where he's coming from. Yeah. And I think that's the, uh, the way that you push any bad character in quotation marks is there has to be a bit that you can sort of agree with. There has yeah. to be a bit of them where you can go, you know what? It, it, it's not, wrong he's just going about it in the wrong way and coming back to our uh bad guy personas in the wrestling that's something that i always try to emulate is people could actually see all right yeah i can see his role as he wants his guy to win you're just going about it the wrong way yeah exactly and you've got to have that 
with Megatron, I think you've got to have that added level as well of you're not just going about it the wrong way, but you're blind to the consequences of what that wrong way is. Mm. So Megatron has to be evil, not just misguided. Magneto can be misguided, but Megatron is a genocidal maniac. Therefore, he has to be wrong and evil as well. Otherwise, you're excusing genocide. So to me, he's got to be that next level again. When people say, oh, you know, maybe Megatron should be redeemed. No, the only redemption Megatron should have is realizing what he's done wrong and submitting himself to execution or permanent imprisonment as a result of his revelation. He doesn't Which get to wandering around. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that. There's a, a very interesting, very late run comic run of Transformers, which is called, and this is a massive tangent, but here we go, because you love character. It's called More Than Meets the Eye. It's set after That's the original. war's finished. Where'd they get that name from? I wonder. It's a good I title. Wonder. Good title. So the war ends and the Transformers have peace on Cybertron. Bumblebee and a bunch of others decide it's time to start up a new Cybertronian government. Hot Rod says, nah, I'm going to gather 200 people on a ship called the Lost Light and we're going to go searching for the mythical Knights of Cybertron because wherever they are, they've obviously built a paradise and they can help us rebuild our world. Goddamn Hot Rod, you John Cena jerk. So they go off on this ship. 20 seconds into the flight, the quantum engines explode and they end up catapulted across the other side of the universe. They've got to try to find their way home. Yeah, right. 10 seconds after they vanish, a message comes through on Cybertron from them, from the future, saying, if we're about to leave, stop us. The fate of the entire universe hangs on you stopping us from... Oh... Time travel, yes. And then a redeemed Megatron gets involved and Soundwave and Ravage get involved and Decepticons that don't want to be Decepticons anymore get involved and Autobots with mental health issues get involved and it's just the most incredible character study of Transformers you could ever read. It's so worth your time. I'm going to be talking to you after we finish recording and getting a list of all these runs and uh, going to Comixology, I think. Excellent. You need to do it. Right, bring it back onto the toy side of things. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how Megatron was very hard to get into Australia <laughs> when he was originally released. Do you want to run us through that? Uh, what? It's, it's so weird to think that a realistically sized, realistically shaped, realistically looking Walther P38 was a problem for Australian customs. <laughs> Who would have thought? How odd. How odd. But I've got a sideline story to that. Yeah, so yeah, Megatron turned into a nickel-plated Walter P-38. He was originally in the Japanese Microman line, a uh, relic from the Man from Uncle spy show on television. That's oh, right. He was inspired by. Cool. And, uh, and he was a good guy in Japan, which the Japanese still have issues with to this day, the idea that Megatron's a bad guy because he's a hero robot. No, he certainly is not. Um, but again, give a guy from the 60s a left-wing guy from the 60s, a bunch of robot toys, and one turns into a gun, of course that's going to end up being the bad guy. Talk mm. about your subliminal messaging right yep. there. Yep. The biggest, most genocidal bad guy is a handgun. Of course, it just makes sense. So in 84, 85, you could get Megatron no problems because people didn't think. And then people started thinking. There was there's apocryphal tales of people robbing service stations in the US with Megatron toys and things like that. And all of a sudden, it was a big clamp down. You couldn't get Megatron. I got Megatron for Christmas, the first year Transformers came out. What? The man at the time was a police officer. What? 
all everybody from the police station came back to our house for Christmas lunch. You've got all these serving South Australian coppers sitting around passing this Megatron gun to each other, trying to figure out how to transform it like a Rubik's cube or something. <laughs> it's my strongest memory of my Megatron toys. All these fully decorated coppers, like taking out their own pieces and comparing it to the gun and going, look at this. It looks so real. Sean, transform that one. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's awesome. So what you just got it in through normal, uh, routes or you I think at the time it was doable I don't I've no recollection of my parents saying that it was difficult or tricky or anything like that because that was in that very first year when everything was brand spanking new Um, wow I reckon that if problems came up it must have come up after that because I mean my parents and my grandparents pulled off some pretty amazing things in terms of getting toys into Australia that I shouldn't have been able to have access to not in terms of illegality but in terms of access you know, yeah. I've got well, there was that of- time that um, you were given that Megatron and then just as you were opening it, your parents got a letter saying, don't give Sean the Megatron, uh, otherwise it'll be the fa-. I was trying to call back Joe. <laughs> Different one. Different. Oh, right. right, right sorry. <laughs> but yeah, um, years later though, they, uh, Takara did a masterpiece version of Megatron. 2007. That's in yep. my notes as well. <laughs> yep. <laughs> go, go for it. <laughs> and uh, friends of mine bought, friends of mine in the US bought it for me as a present. I said, that's great. There's no way I can get it into the country. It's illegal. They're like, oh, what are we going to do? Journalistic friend of mine, Graham Hunter, who worked for Channel 7 for many years, has a gun license. Ooh. So they shipped it to Graham. Oh, Graham was legally entitled to take possession of it. And then he gave it to me. So for many years, I had Graham's transformer on my shelf. Wow. There you go. When I decided I no longer wanted it in the collection and needed to sell it, I gave it back to Graham. Graham sold it and handed me back the money. No, he gave you a donation for looking after his his piece for all those years. The National Megatron Association, the NMA. Ladies and gentlemen, I have killed Ben Rosenthal. Thank you very much. Oh my goodness. That's fantastic. Yeah. We're going to end it there. Uh, (laughs) That's it. That's the high point. Sean, plug some pluggables. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Sean Fuster. You can find me on Instagram at Sean underscore Fuster. You can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Sean Fuster. For the best journalistic coverage in town, advertiser.com.au. Uh, my TV show City of Evil is still on reruns on the Crime Investigation Australia Network on Foxtel. And you can buy the book of City of Evil, which is the first chronicle of my first 10 years as a court reporter at Dimmix in Adelaide, Dimmix Online, or I'm pretty sure there's an ebook version, however you get ebooks. I don't know. I'm not technologically savvy like that. You can also hear Sean commentate big men punching each other in the face That's uh, right. over at RCW. Riot City Wrestling, so RC Wrestling on Twitter, Riot City Wrestling on Facebook, and also every week on 5AA Radio, about 7.35 in the morning, I'll take you through the latest in what's going on in crime and justice on Around the Courts. This has been Retro Trigger. We'll be back again next month with another guest talking about another piece of retro stuff. Uh, Thank you very much, Sean, for coming along and just basically making me redundant. I should have just said, uh, here you go, man, talk about Transformers and go and get a coffee. Oh, well, you know, I just wanted to really give into that kind of Unicron spirit of, uh, you know, devouring the earth. You belong to me now. Who came first, Galactus or Unicron? Galactus, by miles. Oh, really? Yeah. I always wondered that, and, you know, there's no Google or anything. So. That's what I'm here for. 
Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it. Thank you, Sean. We will see you or you not. You. We'll be back in a month. Listen then. Thank you.